you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram right now at LAist Official, L-A-I-S-T Official, where you can join the conversation and take a peek inside of our studio. It's Austin Cross with you, joining you, as always, for another fantastic Friday. Thanks so much for being here today. Larry's back next hour with Film Week. And coming up on Food Friday, we are going to taste some coffees from around the world and dig into some new research that helps explain why the brews we love taste the way they do. That is all coming up. But we start today with AI and a lawsuit by the estate of late comedian George Carlin over a fake hour-long comedy special created by YouTube podcasters. It is titled, George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. In it, the digitized comedian opines on current events like this very meta part about AI itself. And for anybody under 20, this is probably the only version of me you've ever heard. So to you, I'm not only the real George Carlin, I'm the only George Carlin. (laughs) Now, I know this is a hard pill for a lot of you to swallow. Seems that many of you are scared of AI, and I'll be honest, I don't really get why. You all think it's going to replace your jobs and you somehow think that's a bad thing. When did everybody all of a sudden start liking their jobs? (laughs) When I was alive, people hated their jobs. They complained about them all the time. They fantasized about killing their bosses. And every once in a while, they actually did kill their boss. What happened to the America I knew and loved? (laughs) Okay, that is AI George Carlin again. The real George Carlin died in 2008. Kind of captured some of his cadence there, but his estate is now asking for that video to be taken down. They're also asking for damages. They say that uh, the special was created using works that were copyrighted. So look, this is just the beginning of all of this. The question right now is what kind of arrangement actually needs to be in place for creators, estates, IP holders to work together rather than against each other. So with us to talk about it, a real human, Jonathan Handel, entertainment technology attorney at Feig Finkel here in Los Angeles. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on today. Austin, how are you sure that it's me? You know, that's a solid question. And we're going to probably get to a question that gets at that uh, in a second. But whether it's the real or the digital Jonathan Handel right now, I just want to get your read right now on this moment in time where technology, I mean, that what we just heard there was pretty good. What's your read on this moment right now? Well, uh, all I'll say about myself is I am authorized, whoever I am, Uh Unlike uh, the George Carlin that we heard, uh, it it is startling how quickly the technology is advancing 
uh, generative AI, AI that is able to generate content uh, in various domains. Um, I myself um, did a kid's book, Who Do You Want to Be? Uh, available on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle. I wrote the lyrics uh, that then I turned into the words of the book about different occupations. Uh, could be a lawyer, but that's too boring. My mom does that, and she's always snoring. Ah. Uh, but I can't illustrate. Uh, AI did the illustration. I wouldn't. It, it's uh, uh, about fifteen thousand dollars worth of illustration. If a human had done it, I wouldn't have been able to spend that on a you know project like this. So, on the other hand, I am giving ten percent of the proceeds to a nonprofit for children's book writers and illustrators because. The material that the book, that the illustrating illustration program was trained on, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of illustrations. Right, right. Uh, there were no payment uh, to those folks, um, and uh, the illustrations came out great. I have to tell you, they're they're not they're in a watercolor sort of kid style. Uh, here we have a situation where uh, an identity. There's several things tangled together in the Carlin scenario. One is. Um, that the chatbot sounds like him. Um, so his voice was sampled and not sampled, but was analyzed and used to create an AI model that, that could then speak anything in his voice, uh, presumably. And the other is that his written, you know, the transcripts of his content uh, were analyzed so that the chatbot would know, you know, the sorts of things to say. Uh, about subjects that George Carlin never opined on, like, you know, AI right, or, right, right, or whatever. Uh, so, you know, the use of that copyrighted material, his his uh, dialogue, raises an issue of uh, of fair use, whether it's fair use or not, just like the train, the issue of learning from a million illustrations to do my, you know, my book that doesn't imitate any particular illustrator. And the use of the voice raises name image likeness issues which are not copyright they are uh copyright is a single federal law across the country name image and likeness is a patchwork of state laws uh especially when you talk about the post-mortem aspect all right so let's dig into that let me reintroduce you first talking right now with jonathan handel entertainment technology attorney at feig finkel here in los angeles i want to talk about some of the family's claims because they say that uh, this special, you know, was made using 50 years of Carlin content. Historically, in the brief history of AI, it's been hard to prove exactly what was crawled for the creation of AI content. In your legal view, does that change the Carlin estate's chances of getting a judgment in their favor? Only incrementally. Um, so there are two issues one is whose material was used. And here we know the, you know, in the case of my illustrations, we don't know the answer. In the case of uh, Carlin, uh, the, the Carlin bot, we do know the answer. But the other question is, okay, you've ingested copyrighted material and used it to then not make a copy of any particular piece of material, but to make new material in the style of. Is that fair use or is that a derivative work? A derivative work uh, you know, like a translation of a of a book or turning a book into a movie and so forth. Those are things that require a license from the copy holder of the underlying work. But the law doesn't really contemplate this uh, ingestion of millions of works and then you create a, or, or in the case of the Carlin, perhaps, you know, thousands of works, and you create a new work 
there's not identifiably a copy or excerpt or whatever of any of the underlying works. It's just learned the same way, you know, you heard my verse. I, I obviously learned from Lewis Carroll, Dr. Seuss, Gilbert and Sullivan, Tom Lair, who some people will know. Let's, if all of those guy, people were still under copyright, my verse still wouldn't be an infringement. It's in the style of, but I didn't copy the words or even a phrase of anyone else. And the software, same way. So it's a very, there are cases that are pending both in text and illustration and photographs. Um, but I don't give, I think what judges are going to say is, look, this is, this can create a big societal problem, but the law doesn't address this. And I'm a judge, not a policymaker. You have to talk to Congress, which as we all know is busy fighting itself and, you know, quaking in their boots at Trump well, and well, dealing with the election. So Jonathan, let me ask you about a bill that's in the house right now. It's being pushed in large part by Hollywood, it is called the No AI Fraud Act. It essentially would give individuals say over who can use their likeness, digital replicas, deep fakes, voice clones. I would imagine right. that might extend to their estates as well. Is this part of the answer, giving individuals the right to approve all uses? It definitely is part of the answer. I'm, uh, I'm simply uh, pessimistic, as I say, on the chances that anything that sound so geeky and nerdy or even let alone sensible is going to move in this Congress. Uh, it's just, it's, this isn't a, this isn't a wholly partisan issue. There is that, but this is just, it's very hard to get Congress to focus on anything, let alone something that a lot of people in the hinterland is going to say, look, I'm, I'm concerned about the economy and the price of, you know, uh, gasoline and et cetera. Um, or government overreach in whatever area people feel concerned about. And what are you people doing talking about some little, you know, lawyer's delight? Now it's more than that in truth, because a lot of the economy depends on IP and this technology is moving very quickly. Uh, but I think it's uh, it's tough. Another part of the answer that, that did, you know, move forward, of course, was that there are AI related provisions in the new Writers Guild to some extent right. in the Directors Guild deal and definitely in the Writers Guild and SAG after deals. But there are there are holes that are potentially large enough to drive trucks through in, in those provisions. And uh so those those two, the, we're gonna have another round of negotiations starting in, in two years, less than two years from now. And it's going to be an even more uh, intense issue then. Just imagine how much the technology will have changed in two years. That's Jonathan Handel, entertainment and technology attorney at Feig Finkel here in Los Angeles. Jonathan, thanks so much for making the time, man. Thanks. Glad to be with you. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. When we come back, you ever gotten invited to something? You don't really want to go, but you don't know how to say no. So you either end up going... Because, I don't know, it just feels weird. Or you come up with some excuse, some elaborate reason, because you don't want the other person to feel bad, of course. We're going to talk about why it's so hard to say no, and we are going to help you, if this is you, learn to say no better. That's coming up in 60 seconds on AirTalk. Stick around.
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official, L-A-I-S-T Official. So nice to be with you. Coming up at the end of the hour, it is Food Friday. We're going to sip some coffees and talk about them. But first, I want to talk to you about just saying no. And to be clear, no, this isn't some special episode of AirTalk featuring a cameo by an AI version of Nancy Reagan. I am talking about when a friend or acquaintance invites you out to do a thing. You maybe watch a game, maybe hang out, you know. In your heart of hearts, you know you don't really want to do that thing. You'd rather, I don't know, be at home doing your own thing. But what comes out of your mouth are your texting little fingers as some meticulously crafted over-explained message getting into why you can't make it happen. You don't want to hurt the relationship. I get it. You don't want them to not invite you out in the future. But the question that we got here on the AirTalk team is, why are we this way? And maybe how can we do better at just saying no to people? Colleen Kirk co-authored a study on the subject, so of course the perfect person to talk to. She is a professor of marketing at the New York Institute of Technology. Professor Kirk, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Austin. Thank you for saying yes to this invitation. Um, <laughs> and for folks who are listening in, I have a fun question for you today. Do you have trouble saying no? And what's the furthest you've gone to avoid saying no to a social invite? Maybe you told a little fib, maybe a big fib, maybe you got caught in said fib. But what is the furthest that you've gone? This almost seems like the premise of an I Love Lucy episode. Instead of saying no, or maybe you said no and you had to then prove the no, give us a call, 866 893-5722 is the number, 866-893-5722. You can also email us, atcomments at laist.com. Just be sure to include your name and where you are emailing us from. So, Professor Kirk, to start, what led you to study saying no to begin with? Um, well, uh, it actually came, the idea actually came from my co-author, Julian Gibby, at West Virginia University, uh, he's the lead author on the the the, uh, the study, and um, you know he he contacted he called me and said uh, you know the other day I got inv invited to something 
And I really didn't want to go. And I really grappled back and forth and I ended up going. But after he went, he came, you know, he came back and he thought to himself, I wonder if my, you know, my friend who invited me would, would have been upset if I had declined because mm. I really did not want to go <laughs> for a whole bunch of reasons. And so, you know, we were talking about it and he said, uh, said he said, you know, wouldn't this uh, be something interesting to examine? And he did some research and found out that it's not something that really anybody has studied before. So that's where the idea came from. Ah, you know, when it was pitched on our team, we all, a lot of us kind of were like, oh yeah, let's, we've had this happen. I heard a hilarious story from our senior producer, Matt, that he told me about. And I was like, okay, there's really something to this. Uh, just to remind folks listening in, 866-893-5722 is our number. We're asking, what's the furthest you've gone to avoid saying no to a social invite? Or maybe... You can even expand it out to maybe an awkward effort to say no. Maybe it didn't land very well. 866-893-5722 is our number. So, Professor Kirk, besides learning that a lot of us have this problem, what else did you learn from your research? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we did indeed find that uh, when we did a little pilot study, we found that 77% of people uh, that we asked did indeed report that they had attended an invitation when they didn't want to because they were afraid that the inviter or the person inviting them would be upset with them if they declined. Hmm. So you're right that this does happen. And, um, and you know, we found that indeed that people are not as upset as we think they're going to be. Uh, and we did a whole bunch of studies on this and showed it a whole bunch of different ways. And uh, people are really much more able to be empathetic and think more about what the thoughts that are going through our mind and our deliberations than uh, focusing on the fact that we are declining their invitation. I mean, so I do have to ask, though, is it sometimes less about what what people say and maybe just how we say it? Because if I wanted to decline an event, say, and I don't have anything else. I just maybe want to be at home alone reading the Internet. I, I, I'd say it would be rather ham-handed if, you know, somebody invited you and you said, no, nah. <laughs> you know, or just, no, I, I don't want to do that. You know, it, there's there's got to be some tact in here, too, right? Oh, yeah, so that's a really good point. So, um so in our research, we we thought, you know, kind of, yeah, I mean, we're not recommending that anybody just say no, <laughs> but, we, <laughs> you know, um, but uh, but on the other hand, many times, right, we don't really have a good reason and we really just feel like staying home. And so we thought, let's just test for it. So for each of our studies, we use that, we, you know, as 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 the excuse and uh and, uh, you know, uh, and even when we tested actual behaviors, we had couples actually doing this and just tell your, you know, your partner that you just feel like staying home. You don't want to go. You just feel like staying home. And you so that's not a very strong excuse. Right. And we still found that people uh, people who get invited, you know, when we're invited to something, we're very anxious about what the other person is going to think if we say no. And mm. even with such a simple kind of non-excuse like that, right, uh, that people uh, were still very, that people mispredicted, people who got invited uh, mispredicted and misestimated, you know, how upset the other person is going to be, the person who's inviting them. 
so yes, it does. You know, there's there is some research that that um, that shows that yeah, you know, there are some things you can do to make the invitation uh, decline a little bit more palatable. But even you know, even if you don't, even if you just say, you know, look, I really just feel like staying home, it's okay. People get it. I'm talking right now with Professor Colleen Kirk. She is the co-author of a new study looking at the ramifications of saying no. And of course, for folks listening in, of course, for folks listening, okay, I'm slow on that one. Question for you is, uh, if you have trouble saying no, what's the furthest you've gone to avoid saying no to a social invite? Maybe telling a fib, little one, big one. 866-893-5722 is our number. There's also our email address, atcomments at laist.com. We're also live streaming, I should say, on Instagram right now, laist official, L-A-I-S-T official, where the Ken Gregory says, I've actually claimed that I had COVID to avoid flying home for the holidays because a certain family member was going to be in attendance that I didn't like. That was on Instagram Live, pretending that he had COVID. Adam is on the line in Victorville. Adam, tell us a little bit about your experience. Um, I'm real big into sobriety, so I, I don't want to use that as an excuse, but most of my environments that I go to, whether family or friends, they have an issue with being sober. And whether it's edibles or drinking or whatever, I feel like I'm in a movie where everybody's actors, so it's so uncomfortable for me. And I'm not, I'm not trying to accuse them of being that way, but I just make an excuse like I can't do that anymore. Like, I don't know how to be that way. I don't know how to be that, you know, sipping anymore or smoking or eating stuff that makes me like that. So I, I, I use it as an excuse. Like, I don't know how to do that anymore. I can't, I can't be surrounded by that. You know, so it's like an excuse. Like, um, I'm not telling them it's my sobriety, but I'm telling them it's like, I don't know how to stay up all night. So I'll say I got to work in the morning. So it's usually work as a good excuse. <laughs> Adam in Victorville, thank you so much for calling. Actually, what I love about Adam in Victorville's response is he's honest um, and in a nice way. It's like very tactful. I can't keep up with you guys. It's just so great. 866 893 5722. If you'd like to share maybe how far you've gone to avoid saying no to a social invite, we did have one comment on Instagram. Guy pretended to have COVID to avoid going to a family gathering. I want to bring Sharon Martin into the conversation. She's a licensed therapist and counselor based in San Jose, but she focuses on people pleasing, perfectionism, and overthinking, which at this point you might realize could factor into this quite heavily. Sharon Martin, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, are there commonality uh, commonalities, pardon me, in the personalities of people who find it hard to say no and people who might also happen to be people pleasers? Absolutely. I think as we've already established, this is a pretty common struggle. Lots of people experience difficulty saying no. And some of that is because we're human social beings, which means that we need and want to be in connection with other people. So it's only natural that we are reluctant to do something that we're afraid might rupture that connection. So that's something that we feel like might disappoint somebody or anger somebody. So that's why we want to say yes, we want to please other people, we want to have connection with other people. But in addition to that, part of what happens is we're also experiencing a lot of social pressure. We have unrealistic expectations that we should be able to do everything 
and do everything easily. Mm. And this is simply not possible, right? So it makes it hard for us to say no, because then we feel like we're doing something wrong. Like we're failing in some way. I I feel like there's got to be uh, something here, you know, (laughs) having been to therapy, it differs for each individual person, but there's got to be a history often for us, right? Like maybe we've learned through experiences, maybe in our families and such, we are uncomfortable with maybe the idea of disappointing people. Yes. I would say the people who struggle the most with this are going to be people who have had a difficult, a particularly negative experience when they have said no in the past. So whether that's with a boss or your parents or your partner, so something has really gone wrong when you've said no. And then what happens is we take that negative experience with us into other relationships and other encounters with completely different people. And we start to assume that everybody is going to respond negatively when we say no. And I think, you know, going back to Dr. Kirk's research, you know, what they have shown so importantly is that that is simply not the case. But in our minds, we think, oh, no, this is going to be a terrible outcome. People are going to be very angry with me. Um, And then again, that gets in our way of actually saying no. Gosh, just that realization, though, that because we experienced it before, we do often go through life thinking that that's going to be the experience going forward. I feel like I feel thousands of people's neck muscles relax just a little bit and realizing that, yeah, that thing that you thought was true is actually true. I want to ask you about the importance of saying no in just a second, Sharon Martin, licensed therapist. But I do want to get to a call from Christian in Hollywood. Christian, you had a question about the study. Hi, this is it's Kristen uh, from Hollywood, and I actually was just calling it to ask basically a similar thing to what you just talked about. I wondered if this study touched on the feelings we have and what we can do, you know what I mean? Because obviously, you know, let's assume I'm not saying, nah, I don't want to go, but it's more like I'm not as interested in that. How do I then handle my own feelings about maybe like, you know, the disappointment that I didn't go or, you know, like the ruinations, you know what I mean, that happen after that. Ooh, that, that is way? a good one. Yeah. Christian and Hollywood. Uh, Professor Colleen Kirk, co-author of the study. Did you hear that one? Yeah, uh, definitely, uh, Christian. That's a, a super question. And we actually did one of our studies. So we did five different uh, study experiments. And one of the experiments we did, one of the last ones we did was, because we were wondering the same question. And um, what we did is we had, uh, we split people into, you know, uh, in, in halves, I won't go into all the details, but but basically we found that people, if we told them to answer as if they were a an inviter first, that all of a sudden their, you know, their concerns went away. So the key thing, you know, in the the message from that is that if you really put yourself, imagine yourself as the inviter first, and uh, imagine that you invited your best friend, for example, to attend a, an event or to the same event, and they ha- they declined. You know, how mad would you be? <laughs> and you know, most people are not going to be as mad as uh, as we think they are because they're more focused on. They're thinking about, oh, this person must have spent a lot of time you know, thinking about whether they were going to decline or not. And, you know, and, and, and they don't take it personally. 
So I hope that's helpful. <laughs> that's Colleen Kirk right there. I want to highlight something that my uh, senior producer, Matt, says. He says, my advice for saying no is have a kid. They're the best excuse to not attend to something. I'm sure a lot of people could vibe with that. Uh, Sharon Martin, licensed therapist uh, based in San Jose. My last question is to you uh, because it is important to say no. It's also important to say yes occasionally. Uh, how does one determine when is the time to say yes? When is the time to say no? I know sometimes for me, even personally, I can turn down invites that I probably should say yes to, but I'm not feeling it at that time. Right. And so it's one of those, like almost an eat your vegetables moment where like, it's good for you to be out and to be in this place. But at the same time, it's like, no, I just want to watch more Netflix. Uh, how do we find that balance? It really takes pausing before we respond or make a decision. We live in a world that expects us to give an answer immediately, respond to the text or the invitation in the moment. And I think often what really needs to happen is we just need to remember that we can take a little bit of time. You can take an hour or two or a couple of days or a couple of weeks, depending on what the situation is, and really think about it. And like you were saying, weigh the pros, weigh the cons, and pay attention to what do you need. One of the things that really stands out to me in this conversation is, we're, we're talking about making excuses when we don't want to do things. And if instead of seeing those as excuses, we could really see those as valid reasons. What we're really doing is taking care of ourselves. So we want to pay attention to what do I need in this moment? Do I need to stay home or do I need to be around people? Do I need to push myself out of my comfort zone or do I need to rest and, and, and turn inward? Both are valid, depending on what you need in a different situation. And I think if we can shift that thinking to, okay, this is valid for me to take care of myself rather than this is wrong for me to do it and it's an excuse, that would help. I love it. This is your Friday reminder then to get in touch with your body and your feelings and how you're actually feeling about something. That was Sharon Martin, licensed therapist and counselor based in San Jose. She focuses on people-pleasing, perfectionism, overthinking. We also heard from Colleen Kirk, who is a professor of marketing at the New York Institute of Technology, also co-author of that study looking at the ramifications of saying no to a social invitation. When we come back, a lot has changed in the world of restaurant menus. Yeah, and restaurant menus say a lot about where we are as humans. We're going to talk about that when we come back. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on a Friday here on LAist 89.3. Austin Cross with you. Reminder, you can stream us on Instagram at LAist Official. That's L-A-I-S-T Official. Right now, we're talking about restaurant menus. They're not just about the dishes or what we're looking at very often these days, the prices. They also tell the story of a restaurant. And it turns out they offer a little bit of insight into how we eat today, maybe even what we're looking for in our establishment. So for the next few minutes, we want to talk about the art of the restaurant menu, and we're going to do it with Allison Perlman, professor of art history at Cal Poly Pomona and author of, may we suggest, Restaurant Menus and the Art of Persuasion. Allison, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's great to be with you. I am a fan of this show, and I'm really <laughs> proud to say that I'm also a sustaining member of the oh, station. Oh, we love to hear that, Allison. Thank you so much for that. I just want to start off with a look at the trends in menus that we're seeing right now, because based off of what I've seen, there is a push, especially post-pandemic, toward a community feel. That's the one that stands out to me. But what are you seeing in menus right now? Well, I think you're right on with with that idea completely. Um, but there's some clues, there's some symptoms, I guess you could say, on menus these days, of uh, of what you're saying and more. Uh, so if I if I were to point out, you know, one probably the biggest thing that I've noticed lately uh, on menus, it would be this proliferation of new creative menu categories, hmm. uh, you know, that draw attention to the items on the menu that, you know, also create some more opportunities for profit and kind of also cultivate a kind of brand personality that 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 go, hits on what you're saying about community, cultivating a sense of personality, of intimacy with the guest, of creating a culture. Uh, all of that is is in there. So I think this idea of the, the these 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 new categories on the menu that you're seeing, uh, a lot of creative names for them, things like that. If you, I could oh, share yes. some. <laughs> I mean, want. some of the creative names. I just want to say instead of. Um... Instead of things like uh, large plates, they they have these cute names like bigs, smalls, <laughs> like little cute titles for things. Plates. Oh, endless. It's endless. So so actually, uh, there's a few different types of these I could break down for you. Sure, please do. You know, so so they're the t ever tinier shareable dishes. Uh, the so you know you, you not forget the the normal appetizer designation, right? Forget the forget all of that traditional stuff. Uh, you now you've got. In addition to something called starters, you know, which is pretty normal, uh, you might have uh, other things even before that that are called add-ons or extras. Uh, and of course, that's exactly what what they're intended to do. Uh, in addition to the tiny shareable dishes, there's also on the other end of the spectrum, the extra large ones, like you mentioned, uh, the large format dishes to share, 
some, uh, for example, there's a there's a place in in Los Angeles called Kuya Lord, which is a, a great restaurant, by the way, a little restaurant, and they have a big in addition to something called extras and add-ons on the menu. They also have something called Kuya trays, which are these large. dishes in a you know and 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 there's all the sort of creative things across the country going on too uh, there's a place uh, that's been in the press lately a lot in savannah georgia called brochu's family tradition and it's um it, it they have a, a an a, a category called snacks on the menu but they mm. also have this big format item which they highlight on the menu called and the name of it is the whole chicken dinner you know so oh. The whole did it for fifty nine dollars, so you can you can you can get that too. So lots of things that seem kind of con gregarious can create a sense of conviviality, but also are these um, big shareables. There's so also some other interesting little uh, ways, creative new things that that I'm seeing. And um, what one of the things is we've seen restaurants putting on menus items that maybe previously might have been free. like bread mm. and butter <laughs> like oh. you know you know there's there's a bread and butter or olives you know but now it's sort of special it's it's a special bread and a special butter and so you know maybe for eight or ten dollars that's gonna cost you now yeah i mean <laughs> you know, this is something that we've talked about i just want to say this is something that we've talked about uh post pandemic um obviously a lot of restaurants went under during the pandemic those that yeah. have survived they're trying to find ways Uh, to to come back and to stay afloat. And so the two things that stand out to me based off of what you said about the snacks, for example, uh, but also about this desire to have people feel like there's community. My thought on the snacks is I can remember very vividly my first restaurant experience post-pandemic. Um, and yeah, I wanted to try everything. So it kind of seems like, okay, if I'm in this like Try everything you can now that you've been locked up for almost two years sort of mood. Snacks are there for me, and I love that part. Um, and then on the other hand, I, I also feel maybe this is just me being a little bit like jaded, but if you're trying to get me to think that it's community, it's to build a connection with me so I don't feel as bad about paying as much for the experience to eat there. I don't know. Those are just the two things that stand out to me top of mind when I think about what you told your me. Your instincts are good. Your instincts are very good with that. And you, there's another aspect to it too. You were, you were about the pandemic, you know, so mm -hmm. many restaurants had to pivot really quickly and almost turn into like little grocery stores right. um, it, selling things. And I think this kind of gave uh, an idea to sell things maybe that, that, that are unconventional that normally didn't appear on menus and so going along with the, the with the snacks and the other things we're talking about there's an, another kind of creative type of category i'm seeing and i think it relates to this sort of post pandemic what can we sell in a restaurant and 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 expanding the possibilities of what you can sell in a restaurant and that is like you're seeing things that otherwise you would consider pantry items you know right. uh there there's like a, things you might get at a specialty grocery store like um there's a, a restaurant in again in los angeles i'm going to mention la since we're here Uh, there's a, a wonderful restaurant called Yangban in uh, the Arts District in Los Angeles, and they have, of course, a category called extras on the menu. And one of the things, and the thing on the extras category is a spice mix that basically they're selling like a, a spice mix, a rice seasoning mix, they call it. 
hmm. on under that. And that's, you know, and they recommend it. They say it's uh, on the menu. They even say, you know, it's great on everything. <laughs> so you can buy this thing. And, and Kuya Lord, the restaurant I mentioned previously, is selling, actually has a category on its menu called condiments. And there's a list of condiments that you can buy. Um, other restaurants I've seen have actually a category that's literally called merchandise. Uh, so, you know, there are things I think that that restaurants have expanded what they are thinking they can sell. And in addition to this, and uh, some very unconventional and creative merchandising that's going on, too, that cultivates the spirit of the brand. And this goes back to your point about community. Uh, there's a wonderful, I think, really, that epitomizes today's menus, uh, a place in San Francisco called Shuggies. And they have an item on the menu that they feature called, this is the name of it. It's called Buy a Round of Beers for the Kitchen. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that just, I mean, not only, what's beautiful about that is, first of all, it's 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 a great way to, I mean, if you're in the mood, you're in the mood, the place cultivates a sense of conviviality. Right. Everything about the restaurant, everything about their graphics, which is very psychedelic, very colorful, um, full of charming illustration. The the place, the, the website is very um, invites to join the Sugiverse, so you're part of a community. It's uh, and you it, just it, might feel compelled to buy a round of drinks for of everybody. And why not put that on the menu? It's so smart. Um, so things like that. That's Allison Perlman, professor of art history at Cal Poly Pomona and author of May We Suggest, Restaurant Menus and the Art of Persuasion. Professor Perlman, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this today. This is such a fun topic. Anytime. This is Air Talk here on LAS 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram right now at LAS Official. That's L-A-I-S-T Official, where we will be doing Food Friday in just a minute. We're sipping some coffees today. Stick around for that. Back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram right now. LAist official, L-A-I-S-T official. It is Food Friday. And today, you are grabbing coffee with me. We're going to try a few. But we also want to talk about some really fascinating new research. It digs into the very genetic makeup of our favorite bean. And it begins to explain the different flavor notes that we pick up in any given brew. So let's start by bringing in Santos Barrera, plant breeding and genomics expert and research scientist for World Coffee Research. That is a nonprofit research and development program for the global coffee industry. It is based in Portland, Oregon. Santos, welcome. So welcome. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. So Can you hear me? Okay. You, you sound great. You sound loud and clear. So I, I want to ask you uh, first and foremost, uh, because I do feel like I had to brush up on my biology a little bit to understand this latest study. Uh, but I'm hoping you can break down why this latest research is so groundbreaking briefly and, you know, what it helps us understand about the coffee that we drink. Well, so it is important. That's a very good, good question that to understand that 
it's always known the Arabica coffee, which is the coffee that we consume the most uh, globally. Uh, it's is thinking that is with low diversity. Basically, uh, many of the the previous publications have uh, outlined that that Arabica is, is has low diversity. However, with this publication, the authors highlighted that uh, there is not that low diversity. There is still diversity to explore. Basically, because when uh, Arabica was uh, created around 50,000 years ago, because of the natural cross between a, a sister species, which is the Robusta uh, uh, coffee, which also consume, and another species is Coffea eugenoides, uh, was naturally created. Um, uh, so there were there were some events that give uh, lead to a new mutations in Arabica. So this article is basically outlining that although Arabica is is, is less diverse than the Canephora, the parental one, and the Eugenoides, there are some parts of the genome that are still uh, diverse enough, so which provides what we already all know the, the delicious coffee that we all drink. So we understand a little bit more about coffee right now. Just to remind folks right now, we just were talking with Santos Barrera, plant breeding and genomics expert and research scientist for World Coffee. Well, let's talk right now with Larry Jones, one of the co-owners of Jones Coffee Roasters, who is our local Pasadena uh, native shop. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, and thank you for having me. So I have four different coffees in front of me right now. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell me why these four were selected, just to start. Well, I, I selected them this morning because, number one, they were uh, at the bar this morning. So Perfect. they were perfectly <laughs> fresh and perfectly uh, perfectly good. Uh, that's the main one. I Secondly, it. I think the most they're all from uh, my wife's coffee's family's farm in western Guatemala. And as such, they uh, represent about 60% of the coffee that we roast. And the rest of the coffee, which is not here, uh, is coffee f that we buy from around the world, which is, makes our coffee and its various blends uh, important to us. They're all Arabica coffee. They and they're, and they're all, all, they've all got the same genome, and I'm interested in hearing more about the genome because— uh, Genome is the is is the term for the for the year, so to speak. And perhaps our expert could uh, fill us in on whether or not genetic engineering and the CRISPR techniques are uh, are going to be avail available to shopkeepers like myself in the future. Well, Santos, I do want to ask you about that because having this sort of technology, having this deeper understanding as we do now. Uh, I know that plants in general, but especially coffee, is up against various environmental uh, concerns. Uh, there's climate change happening. Could this help us, I don't know, engineer a, a bean that's more resilient or maybe even a tastier bean? Sure. So that's a good question. Uh, so so far, in, there are few uh, genome editings uh, with some other crops. Uh, such as strawberries, um, but with coffee, even though in, in the publication the, uh, the, the authors highlighted about the low, low diversity, there is not a need for gene, uh, uh, gene editing and, until this point. And the reason I'm saying this is because there is still enough diversity to explore and to mine to um, um, provide new varieties 
that are more resilient from conventional breeding, basically from crossing one male parent with a female parent and obtaining the, the coffee that we all, we all drink. But if we want to explore that path, of course, there is a possibility, but let's first focus on, on the conventional breeding because we, have, we see the value of science and conventional breeding. That's what we do uh, at WCR. Is, is using the resources that we have and the diversity that we have to create new varieties that are more resilient. Um, of course, there's, there's a possibility of, of doing CRISPR or gene editing, uh, but we haven't explored all of the diversity in, uh, through the conventional brain to go farther in, in that road. Talking right now with Santos Barrera, plant breeding genomics expert and research scientist for World Coffee Research. So coming back to Larry Jones, uh, I'm going to, of course, try these coffees. It smells so good. They're filling up the studio with this very fresh oh, aroma. Oh, thank you. As, thank I, you. as I try, um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about tasting notes, how you know what you're tasting, how you tell other people, how you communicate sure. to other people in a way where they understand it. Well, I tell you, I think uh, I think it's a very comparable to the techniques that are used for tasting wine. Mm. And I think... And I think uh, it 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 starts with uh, the aroma, and you are mm. in the process now of enjoying the aroma and the first first taste as well. Wow. So the second uh, second way of analyzing it after aroma is is the taste itself on the tongue, and that huh. that can huh. get, can be broken down into acidity, which in coffee is a good thing. It's a little bit like soda water. If you have a Perrier, for instance, uh, excuse the plug sure. uh, Perrier is is a very good tasting uh, water in part because there's a sparkle to it, it so and oh. then, then there's then there are the uh, there's the aftertaste we have uh, which can in, in very good coffee um, can last for an hour or two and it's really? a little bit like good good food you say my my that was a wonderful meal I had. Uh, a couple hours ago, and I, I can still taste it. I mean, what stands out to me about this one is it really fills your mouth entirely. Some coffees, you drink it and, you know, kind of goes away. But as you were walking me through the experience, I was feeling it. I was like, okay, there's the first taste, <laughs> and there's the flavor on the tongue afterwards. And I wish I knew the words to describe to you what I was experiencing. Um, I'm not sure if these coffees were labeled or not, but, so if you could yeah. tell me about the one that I had. But um, it... It was a full experience. I have to say, it's it's not just your standard cup. Well, we call that uh, excuse the pun Chuck Roast, uh, oh. and and unabashedly we named it Chuck Roast after uh, our son Chuck, who uh, who runs our uh, company now. So it's Chuck's roast. Chuck, it's it's Chuck Roast. Yeah, I I hope I hope you'll excuse that. No, that's it, that's <laughs> really funny. So talk to me about the range of coffees that are here. So I just had one. It didn't feel I, I do know when there's a coffee that's been you know roasted heavily like a dark roast versus a light roast that one didn't feel like a particularly dark one I might even place it at medium but. well you're absolutely right the coffee that you're uh, that you have in your hand now is 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 a combination of 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 two different medium roasts uh, the mm. the standard uh, Medium roast uh, is served in Southern California. We call a French roast. It's mm. to be differentiated from a light roast, which right. is Vienna, and a dark roast, which is Italian. Um, we we found that to be a very popular roast 
But uh, compared with other uh, coffee roasters in Southern California, we found that our coffee, uh, our, our coffee was uh, a little, little bit more popular. As a matter of fact, it won some prizes way back uh, because it was lighter and uh, had a little more caffeine and a lot more taste in its profile. <laughs> caffeine and taste are the two things that I love. You know, Larry Jones, I might have to leave it there. This is Air Talk. On a Friday, I'm Austin Cross. Thank you so much for being with us. We just had Larry Jones, Jones Coffee Roasters in Pasadena. We also heard from Santos Barrera. My thanks to everybody. Have a fabulous weekend. Thank you, Austin. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Film Week on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. That song, key to the first film that we're going to review this week with critics Peter Rayner of the Christian Science Monitor and Wade Major of Synagogues.com. The film is the documentary The Greatest Night in Pop. It takes us back to January 25th, 1985, when that recording you just heard was made. Dozens of the biggest names in music convening at a Los Angeles studio to record that fundraising song. The documentary The Greatest Night in 
Canadian pop uh, is streaming on Netflix starting next Thursday. And Wade begins. Wade, what did you think of the doc? It's terrific. And uh, again, I am biased because I remember when these songs came out. It Me too. Uh, it came right on the heels of Bob Geldof putting together "Do They Know It's Christmas" with all the British talent, right? So this was the American answer to that. And uh, Lionel Richie still with us, thank goodness, because he co-wrote the song with Michael Jackson. So he walks us through the entire process of how the song came together and how it was butted up to the American Music Awards, which he was also hosting, where he also won a ton of awards, and the incredible stress and chaos of herding all of this talent into one room at one time. And the song is so good and so memorable and so extraordinary that, that you know, we, don't, we, we take it for granted. Oh, you bring a bunch of professionals in a room and it happens. No, they had to decide who's going to do the solos and who, and, and there's even a walkout, and I won't spoil it for anybody, but there is a legendary talent who just said, I'm done with this and, really? and left. And, and they kind of laugh about it in hindsight because it really was incredibly tense. But the, the high point for me was hearing the engineer talk about, and they have footage of it, when Michael Jackson laid down some of his initial tracks. And, and you see it and you hear it. And he talks about just how extraordinary it was to hear that voice in the studio. And you have the same reaction watching this film. One of the things I love about the recording is the the solos in the song. You hear how they're really pushing themselves because yeah. they're, yeah. in a sense, competing against their peers. And so you hear some of the great vocal lines that these artists have done in this song. Peter, what did you think of The Greatest Night in Pop? Yeah, it's it's, it's terrific. Um uh, you know, the song for me is one of the great earworms. <laughs> I think uh, it was designed to be that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, But what's interesting is how, you know, they talk about the process of how the song was created and how everything was put together. And, and all these great artists in, in, in the single studio, with you know, Quincy Jones, who coordinated the whole thing, had a sign over the entryway, so, you know, check your ego at the door. Right. Um, but but all of the stuff that that they talk about, we actually see footage of. We see Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson, you know, working out a collaboration. We see all the artists, you know, rehearsing their 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 one you know lyric, and 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 it, it's almost as if they knew there was going to be a film eventually made of this, and they yeah. feel they have incredible amount of footage. It's astonishing we haven't seen it yet that it's it has taken all these decades for us yeah, to finally see yeah. all this footage it's i have amazing. seen some clips over the years yeah. but but nothing yeah. that gives you the no, full it's all, scope it's, it's all together but the funny thing is that they show you all of different artists who were very nervous in some cases like huey lewis and cindy lauper you know i mean because they know they really got to knock it out of the park you know and then they get to bob dylan who <laughs> doesn't quite fit in you know yeah. and he's trying to do you know he's just and we did you and me you know, it's very funny. You know, and Springsteen, who is among the the people who they interview contemporarily, um, uh, is is really sharp about the whole process and what happened and what was good and bad and and all the ins and outs. Uh, he's really sort of your your spirit guide to to the sanity of what was going on there. <laughs> it it sounds so entertaining. It is. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the documentary, The Greatest Night in Pop. We are the world's recording at the historic A&M, now Henson Studios in Hollywood. The film is unrated. It starts streaming on Netflix next Thursday, January 29th.
Sometimes I Think About Dying is a romantic comedic drama starring Daisy Ridley and Dave Meredge. Uh, the film is directed by Rachel Lambert and written by Stephanie Abel Horowitz, Kevin Armento, and Katie Wright Mead. Peter, what do you think of Sometimes I Think About Dying? Uh, it's a terrible title for a terrific movie. <laughs> you know, I don't know that you could recommend this movie, but just based on its title, uh, it says, oh, I think I have other plans tonight. Um, but it's, it's, it's a really, you know, it's it, it, Daisy Ridley, who's a wonderful actress, who's primarily known for Star Wars, but you know, hasn't had much of a great career since then with these movies that barely get released. But this one was a, a Sundance, pardon the expression, uh, fave last year. And, um, it's, she plays this kind of very mousy, uh, you know, cubicle worker in Washington State or Oregon coast that, uh, you know, basically goes home and eats cottage cheese and does Sudoku and talks to her mother on the phone <laughs> and, you know, dresses in neutral colors. And, and she sort of wants it this way, but she's she's very neutral person. And but but the the office that she works in, it's never quite clear what her job is. Um, this film has some of the best at, you know, office workplace uh, uh, atmosphere I've ever seen in a film. It's so accurate to you know people coming in and pouring the coffee and small talk, and it's just it's it's very sharply observed. And she's sort of brought out of her shell a bit by um, the character played by Dave Marish, who's who's a wonderful comic actor, I gather, and you know he's a stand-up comic. Uh, sometimes and 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 the, the relationship that they have is is quite touching and and never forced never sentimental I mean the whole movie really has has a, a, a wonderful and I'll just say one more thing that if you describe this film to people they'll say oh that sounds really boring the trick is Stanley Kaufman once wrote a very interesting review of a Russian film he said the trick to making uh, if you're going to show boring stuff on screen, the trick to not making it boring for the audience is to make the audience feel like if I too were in that situation, I would be bored, as opposed to boring that's the funny. audience. Yeah. You know, and that's what this film does. We're talking about sometimes I think about dying. Wait. So it, it is structured very much as a romantic comedy: boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. There's nothing. There's nothing uh, revolutionary about that, and it is also part of that subset, that subgenre of misfit romantic comedies, which kind of begins in 1962 with Frank and Eleanor Perry's David and Lisa, includes things like Punch Drunk Love. And and there is an, an innate charm to that, that that I think is done better here than I've seen it done in years. Because when you do them, you have to make the misfits real. You can't mock their social anxiety. You can't make them the butt of the joke. You have to, to make their very unique insular romance something credible. You have to make it appealing and affectionate. You have to bring the audience into their anxiety. And that's what what is done so incredibly well here. Rachel Lambert does an amazing thing. She takes a play that is very theatrical and she expands it in an incredibly cinematic way, but not on a grand canvas. Like Peter said, you feel the atmosphere of the office. I mean, the mundane chit-chat, but you don't care about it because you're so wrapped up in these characters. It's beautifully done. Sometimes I think about Dying's rated PG-13 starring Daisy Ridley and Dave Meredge. You can see it in a one-week run at AMC's The Grove 14 before it expands to select theaters next Friday the 2nd. The Tunisian drama Under the Fig Trees is Tunisia's uh, entry for Academy Award consideration. The film's in Arabic, uh, and it's directed by Arij Sahiri. What did you think, Peter, about Under the Fig Trees? Uh, it's a terrific movie. It's um, It takes place in one day uh, in a, um, a fig tree orchard. 
uh, in the summer, and uh, the people who are working there are a cross section of you know young old uh, men women young men young women. Uh, there's a kind of uh, belligerent boss uh, who who's making sure that the figs are ripe and that nobody's stealing stuff. And uh, it, I mean, it's all, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a Tunisian Altman movie <laughs> in a way. I mean, you've got this cross-section of people and, and, and she, the director moves back and forth between, you know, this, this young couple, this, this young girl who had a crush on this kid when he was seven and then he moved away and now he's back picking, you know, figs with her and he doesn't she's still smitten and, and he's kind of trying to act aloof and there's all these wonderful stories there's older ladies you know some of them are quite religious some of them are you know very gossipy uh there's all sorts of sexual politics going on uh i mean it, it just moves very smoothly uh throughout this community and, and really gives you without fully being aware of it uh, in, in a way uh, a a real depth of feeling as to, you know, how these people, you know, work and, 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 and the working conditions. And it's really, uh, it's a marvelous little movie. Under the Fig Trees from Tunisia and the director, Arij Sahiri, co-wrote the screenplay as well. It's unrated. It's available for viewing on demand. Also this week on Film Week, Behind the Haystacks, which is Greece's official submission for Best International Oscar. The film is written and directed by uh, Asamina uh, Proredru. What did you think, Wade, of Behind the Haystacks? Yeah, if you don't find it under the fig trees, you'll find it behind the haystacks. <laughs> uh, re- the yum-yum tree. <laughs> also released by Film Movement, who seems to love movies with prepositional phrases. Behind the Haystacks is actually a quite a good film, and it doesn't feel like a Greek film. Uh, it feels more like, almost like a Darden Brothers film. It has that that uh, very urgent kind of slice of life quality that you mostly find in French and Belgian cinema, Francophile cinema. Um, um, it's about a guy, a fisherman, a Greek fisherman, has a very tough life, goes across the Macedonian border to sell his fish, and and uh, his, he's just not keeping up. He's getting buried in debt. And so he decides to become a migrant smuggler, and that has a whole cascading series of, of uh, ramifications for him and his wife and their daughter. And, their, you know, you wrap all of this, uh, this generational struggle up in it. And it's, it's really quite an interesting tale, uh, and it's a slow burn. It really it, it kind of warms its way under your skin, but it, it really pays off br- very bravely by the end. We're talking about the Greek movie Behind the Haystacks. Peter, quick thought on this. Uh, it's very good. It's, it's structured as... As a sort of from three separate characters' points of view, it's not a Rashomon kind of thing because the, the stories all interlink in the same way. But but you you do get a sense of of you know really contrasting viewpoints, and uh, it also I think points up a lot of the xenophobia in this community and and the the reaction to the the Muslim immigrants. You know, there's the 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 local priest doesn't want any outreach for the immigrants, um, and the the wife of one of the characters is very religious and and is torn between you know wanting to help and and wanting to abide by her husband and her priest you know precepts uh, there's a lot going on in this movie it reminded me in some way of the Romanian movie RMN yeah uh, you know but it's 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 quite strong behind the haystacks is unrated it's streaming on film movement plus the South Korean action-adventure Badland Hunters is directed by Hyo Myung Hing the film is unrated Peter well, if you saw um, any of the uh, Concrete Utopia, which was the uh, South Korean movie 
that it, this is sort of a sequel to that. Uh, there's been this apocalyptic earthquake and people are, you know, roaming the world trying to find out, you know, where to live, where to eat, what to drink. And there's this one high rise that remains with this crazy doctor who seems like he's out of poor things, uh, who, um, <laughs> you know, is trying to to uh, create a new race in a sense. And uh, it, it, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of uh, exciting and kind of uh, disposable. But but I think, you know, if you if you liked Concrete Utopia, this film sort of extends the uh, the madness of that film. Uh, Batland Hunters unrated and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, the Underdogs uh, stars Snoop Dogg and Tika Sumter, Mike Epps and George Lopez. Wade, what do you think of The Underdogs? I wanted to like it so much because I like Snoop. I mean, he's, you know, he's a Laker fan. He's an L.A. local. He's a legend. And uh, I, this is just so terrible. I I really disliked the first half of it. I thought it was just so amateurish and, and shameless. I mean, it's basically the Mighty Ducks with Snoop as a washed-up football receiver who, you know, has to now coach this this kid, this kind of ragtag kids team. But it owns that Mighty Ducks analogy because he's literally told at one point in the film, hey, this is just like the Mighty Ducks, and you kind of roll your eyes. And then by the end, you realize Snoop's just using this movie as a plug for his football league. So the whole thing is really just very mercenary, and it's not well done. And uh, I, I, I just found it kind of painful. But I think I gave up in the second half and just kind of went with it because it was just too much to resist. The Underdog, starring Snoop Dogg, directed by Charles Stone III, written by Danny Siegel and Isaac Seamus. It's rated R. The Underdogs is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Coming up, we'll talk about Norman Jewison, the great director who died last. Saturday uh, in his late 90s, but left behind an extraordinary film legacy. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. Much more to come. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Coming up later on the program, we'll talk with all three of the directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Their film, of course, Oscar-nominated for Best Animated Feature, Justin K. Thompson, Kemp Powers, and Joaquim Dos Santos will all be with us in studio talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. But we're so pleased to have with us just back from Park City and the Sundance Film Festival, Justin Chang, Los Angeles Times film critic, who share with us some of his favorites at the festival this year. Justin, thanks so much. Please start us out with Presence, uh, which is a horror thriller, thriller directed by Steven Soderbergh. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Uh, you know, Steven Soderbergh, who won the top prize at Sundance 35 years ago for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And even though with all his Hollywood success, he's always been still in the vanguard of independent filmmaking. Presence is a ghost story that stars Lucy Liu and Chris Sullivan as a married couple who've just moved with their two teenage children into a house that turns out to be haunted. Uh, so, so far, so normal, or, or paranormal, rather. What's ingenious about the movie, and this is not a spoiler, is that it's shot entirely from the ghost's perspective. <laughs> um, I won't say more than that, except that, as you'd expect from Soderbergh, the direction and the camera work are ingenious, um, extraordinarily clever. 
And the movie is both spooky, darkly funny, and and in the end, it's quite devastating, too. Mm. We're talking about the horror thriller Presence from Steven Soderbergh. David Kep wrote the screenplay. Love Lies Bleeding, a romantic drama starring Kristen Stewart. Rose Glass directed it and co-wrote it, Justin. Yeah, this is a very different movie from Rose Glass's um, horror movie, St. Maud. And I'll just say, if you see only one ultra-violent lesbian bodybuilder noir this year, you should make it this This would one. be it, okay. <laughs> this would be it. In that huge genre of films, yes. <laughs> the, the, the year is early, though. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> but, um, let's, let's just say the movie introduces Kristen Stewart unclogging a toilet and only gets nastier from there. Um, it also stars a terrific Katie O'Brien as the aforementioned bodybuilder with whom Kristen Stewart falls in love which sets off this chain of violence and revenge, some of which just has to be seen to be believed. Um, this was in the festival's midnight section. It was a big hit there. I was really fun seeing it with the crowd. Um, extremely tense and stylish and atmospheric in a way that will remind a lot of people of Drive um, with the Ryan Gosling movie from years ago. So um, mm. it's very darkly funny. And well. intense. Love Lies Bleeding from director and writer Rose Glass. Kristen Stewart stars A Real Pain, a comedic drama starring Kieran Culkin and Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg wrote and directed A Real Pain. Yeah, so Eisenberg and Culkin play bickering cousins on holiday in Poland. Um, and Eisenberg, in this case, is sort of the calm, level-headed, straight man, while Culkin, in his first movie role post his succession Emmy win, uh, is the gregarious but really volatile, uh, hot-headed one who often gets them in trouble. And so it's a deceptively lighthearted buddy comedy, but I, I, with quite a bit of depth to it. Um, and I think it's a real advance for Eisenberg as a writer-director after his previous film, When You Finished Saving the World. It's also a personal story rooted in some of his experience. And both actors are terrific. And the movie becomes kind of a meditation on pain, as the title suggests, and sort of the difference between personal pain and world historical pain as embodied by the many Holocaust memorials um, that the two characters and their fellow tourists are visiting. Um, so yeah, it's a really entertaining movie. A lot of heart and a lot on its mind as well. A Real Pain, starring Kieran Culkin, Jesse Eisenberg. A Different Man, a thriller starring Sebastian Stan and Renata Rensva. Films written and directed by Aaron Schimberg. Uh, different Man, Justin. Yeah, A Different Man is a hilarious and unclassifiable blend of sort of dark comedy with science fiction, some Cronenbergian body horror. Sebastian Stan gives a remarkable performance as an actor who has neurofibromatosis, um, a facial condition that in the movie is healed through some experimental procedure. Um, and it's about what happens and doesn't happen when he starts going through his life uh, looking as handsome as Sebastian Stan does. Um, it should be said the movie features really terrific support from uh, Renata Reinze from the, who you will remember from The Worst Person in the World. She was wonderful in that. Um, and the, the real scene stealer here though is Adam Pearson, who, an actor who actually does have neurofibromatosis. Um, and he appeared in Under the Skin, uh, which could also be the title of this movie. Um, it's a very playful, almost meta comedy at times, um, really fascinating, continually surprising, and uh, from uh, the writer-director Aaron Schimberg. A Different Man, Black Box Diaries, a documentary uh, that's uh, directed by Shuri Ito, and it's her story as a journalist investigating her own sexual assault. Justin? 
a really a really hard hitting film that sheds light on how as underreported and underprosecuted as sexual assault is all over the world. Um, it's been especially awful in Japan. Uh, at one point in the movie, the statistic is floated that only perhaps around 4% of such incidents are reported, uh, you know, let alone prosecuted. And so what's really commendable about Shiori Ito's um, film is that, she, and her experience is that she herself is a journalist and a writer. She's writing a book alongside this investigation. And so it's her journalistic acumen and tenacity that empowers her to go public with her story. And so while the movie is fairly straightforward in following her investigation, her interviews with police officers, witnesses, and others as she seeks justice, um, her efforts to do this, there's something there's something really extraordinary about her seeing her courage in confronting her attacker and her naysayers in the media head on. We're talking about the documentary Black Box Diaries, all of these films being shown currently at the Sundance Film Festival, and our final film from Sundance, In the Summers, uh, a drama that's set in New Mexico, written and directed by Alessandra Lacaraza Samudio. Yeah, I walked into In the Summers knowing nothing about it, which is often the best way to see a movie, of course. And it's a kind of long-term coming-of-age movie about a single father played by the Puerto Rican musician uh, René Perez Yoglar, who's better known as Residente, and the two kids who come to visit him each summer. And they're played by different actors over the course of the movie, which spans four different visits. And this is a movie that touches on parenting, alcoholism, neglect, queer identity, among other things. But what's really wonderful about In the Summers is it is not emphatically about any of those things. It's not an issue movie. It plays out with great subtlety and low-key realism that by the end, Larry, I don't know if it was me being at Sundance and missing my own two daughters for disclosure. <laughs> it just completely broke my heart. And oh. uh, I hope it'll be picked up and released sometime soon so that it can break everyone else's too. Oh, that's great. Yeah. In the Summers is the film from writer-director Alessandra Lacaraza Samudio. Uh, and just in closing, Justin, we're pretty much out of time, but you think we're going to get a chance to see all of these films either in theaters or streaming? Yes, I think so. And I'm terrible at having distributor information uh, right at hand. I know some of these movies do have distribution. You know, Neon actually bought Presence, the Soderbergh film, out of uh, festivals. So, okay. And that's one that you should de we will definitely see in theaters, and it's a great audience movie. So I'm grateful that uh, that they picked that one up. And I hope the other ones, um, some of which do have distribution too, will be seen soon. So, Justin, thank yeah. you so much. Really appreciate you sharing what you saw and what most impressed you at the Sundance Film Festival. Welcome home. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always, Larry. Thank you so much. And you'll have a chance to see Justin on stage at our Film Week Academy Awards preview coming up Sunday, March 3rd at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. Justin, one of our 11 Film Week critics who will be on stage there. Now, still with us, uh, Peter Rayner and Wade Major. We want to talk about director Norman Jewison, who died at the age of 97 last Saturday. Peter, let me start with you and just what you think is his big his filmic legacy well he he was incredibly versatile he did everything from Doris Day comedies to Fiddler on the Roof to In the Heat of the Night uh, I think his legacy was just that he was he was so strong uh, in ways that really mattered with subject matter that really mattered uh, In the Heat of the Night uh, you know is, is, is a marvelous movie Fiddler on the Roof is one of the best musicals ever made you know he he really was able to and Moonstruck of course is a, you know a great comedy he did all of this stuff um, with with real panache and he was a real actor's director I mean it's, it's no accident that the performances in his films 
uh, are, are always a cut above even what those actors normally did in, in other films. Rod Steiger in, in The Heat of the Night. Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I wrote and, and, and co-produced a documentary on Poitiers for A&E, and, uh, and, and Jewison was a big part of that show. Uh, also, there was a Zeitgeist documentary on the making of Fiddler on the Roof last year that really is almost like a tribute to, to Jewison. It's worth seeing just for, for... He was a marvelous raconteur, and, and he also... Uh, he started what was in effect the Canadian version of the American Film Institute. Uh, you know, he was very active in, in promoting young filmmakers and, in, in, you know, film culture, both in Canada and in America and Hollywood and England. Uh, you know, and I have to say, you know, personally, he was just a marvelous guy. He was just, you know, the, the, the old adage that, you know, really nice guys don't make good movies is not true in his case. Uh, I mean, he really, and I think it's because he was so perceptive about human, uh, 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 emotion, you know, about human behavior, and that translated into the way he directed actors and the way they came across. It, it, it's something very authentic about his people, and you know. So I think, uh, and even you know, the first film that he considered his own first film, even though it wasn't the Cincinnati Kid, which he took yeah. over from Sam Peckinpah, who was fired. I mean, that's a marvelous movie, you know, with, with Edward very G. Robinson, funny. and you know, I mean, he worked well with Thomas Crown Affair is yeah. just you know a blissful romance uh, thriller spy, you know, whatever you want to call it is is great. The Russians are coming. The yeah. Russians are coming is hilarious, you know. I mean, Alan Arkin, even Saint, all those people in those films, you know, there's a whole you know pageant of wonderful performances by wonderful actors in his films. Yeah, Wade, your your thoughts of, of Norman Jewison? L- the, literally the last of a particular breed, and we could also throw Sidney Lumet and Sidney Pollack in there. They were, they were the last of a breed of directors who could do anything, any genre, any type of film, and bring uh, an artist's veneer to it. They could take the the silliest of scripts or the the most mundane of dramas and make it artful. And I spent an evening with Norman Jewison um, at a Skirball event, part of uh, AFI On Screen Cinema's Legacy series about 20-some years ago, and it was amazing. I mean, he was such a genteel, kind, um, more interested in me for some reason than I was interested in him, and I think that speaks to the kind of filmmaker that he was. He was observational. He loved people. And we forget, he produced and directed the Judy Garland show on television. And if you can get hold of the DVDs of that, his audio commentaries are astonishing. Astonishing. I, I'm glad you mentioned live television yeah. because he, and I think this is true of Lumet also, didn't they yes. get a lot of live their television. experience doing Absolutely. Early the whole live generation. TV? Yeah. John yeah. Frankenheimer, there were a yeah. whole bunch of directors like that. You know, but Jewison worked with, you know, Sinatra, with all, all the, the great music people. Also, I mean, his socially conscious films, you know, The Soldier Story, uh, In the Heat of the Night, he did... Um, Hurricane? Uh, yeah, about the Reuben Hurricane, Hurricane yeah. Carter. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he really, he was going to do Malcolm X, and then, you know, Spike Lee stepped in, so end of story. But, yeah. but I mean, that probably would have been, you know, great if he had done it as well. Uh, I mean, he was very, very aware of, of social aspects of film. Norman Jewison, who died last Saturday at the age of 97. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3.
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with the directors of the Oscar-nominated animated feature Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. The directors are Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming, and congratulations that this week you got the well-deserved Oscar nomination for Best Animated Feature. It's got to feel great. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Kemp, let me uh, start with you, because you stepped in following your film, Souls, Best Animated Feature win, uh, to now co-direct a sequel to another Best Animated Feature film. Expectations very high here. How did the expectations for the sequel across the Spider-Verse influence, if it did, the development of this movie? Um, One of the wonderful things, what excited me about stepping into this project was that into the Spider-Verse didn't really influence this at all. They wanted to try to do something completely different. Um, And coming off of Soul, which I was so excited to work on that film as both a co-writer and a co-director with um, Pete Docter, um, it was really exciting because I thought of Soul as an original film, and in a weird way, I thought of Across the Spider-Verse as just as much an original film as Soul. So the characters recur, but just, yes. you don't really see it as or didn't think of it as a sequel. No, I really didn't. It was more like taking a character that I, I'm just a I was just a fan like everyone else with Into the Spider Verse. So I just saw that and was blown away like everyone else in the yeah. world when they saw it. It was like, oh, do you want to have an opportunity to take these characters and go on a completely new, interesting, original journey and introduce a lot of other characters that I was pretty excited about. So for me, they're both original films. Uh, Justin, you were production designer on the first film. Mm -hmm. It had such an incredibly unique look, and it was groundbreaking in the animation. So as as a co-director of the sequel, what did you want to amplify from the first film or really add in, in bringing back Miles and Gwen? Well, I think because we had a different story, I, I wasn't actually interested in doing a sequel either. And when they first brought it up to me, I was kind of like, well, we kind of did that. And I'm I'm really interested in always pushing the medium as far as it can go. So, But when they presented the story to me and I saw that there were all these opportunities to create these new dimensions, to try out new techniques that I had only touched upon in the first film and even new techniques that we hadn't even thought of to create all these new dimensions that would require the development with our visual effects team of 
brand new technologies that didn't even exist. They had to create software, new software to and techniques to be able to make the paintings move across the screen and, and all the line work that was on the characters that looked like it was drawn by a comic book artist. All this stuff had to actually be made and we didn't know how it was going to look to make uh, Spider-Punk, Hobie Brown, look like a 1970s punk rock poster come to life. We had to develop all that. But we had these ideas right from the beginning, and I just couldn't step away. And that's what boggles my mind is I understand having the idea, but then how you execute to get that image this and, and the reference like he's moving through it just the way this static image that we all know that we've seen, you know, thousands of times, and he's moving through a film. It is just... I can't imagine the excitement when you see that work. Oh, man. The excitement is the right word. There were times when I we would be in our our little sweat box, we call it. It's a little screening room where we're doing all this work with our crew. And they would show us a test in, like of Hobie Brown or when the spot, when he turns into like the evil spot and all mm-hmm. the effects are swirling around i would jump off the couch and i would run around the room screaming and clapping for for the crew because there was so much experimentation and bravery and iterations that it took to get there and to see them after all these attempts over and over and over again to for us to finally achieve something that none of us had ever seen before was it was it was an amazing Experience. We're talking with the three directors of the Oscar-nominated Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. That was Justin K. Thompson, from whom you were just hearing, Joaquim Dos Santos and Kemp Powers, the other two of the uh, trio of directors on the film. Joaquim, give us a sense of how the three of you work together. Was there a division of labor, and uh, or, or were the three of you pretty much uh, on the same things together? Well, I mean, I think early on, uh, you know, we were all in all the same meetings uh, for a year and some change. We were sort of lockstep in everything. And, and that was really sort of a, not only a, a sort of feeling out process for where we sat with the film, but where we sat with each other. And, mm-hmm. and thankfully, we all get on really, really well. Um, but we also got to sort of understand each other's tastes and opinions and where we might differ. So. You know, each of us has sort of a superpower that we that, that is our, our filmmaking background. Um, and when production really got rolling, we got to sort of rest into those those spaces. Um, and when stuff came up, you know, Justin is like a super pro at pausing a meeting and saying, like, hang on a second. We got to get a quick, you know, confab with the other two directors and we jump into a jump into a meeting if possible. Um, but when that wasn't unav- you know, uh, available to us we sort of understood each other's filmmaking vocabulary enough to say like, I think this is something that, you know, would be a red flag for Kemp or for Justin. Um, and that, I mean, that's kind of how it went. Uh, but that first year, year and, and change was really a bonding experience. How many us. years did you work on the project? Four plus. Wow. So yeah. it started even before I, the end of the other. Yeah. Films. I came in at the tail end of the first one. Um, and you know, I was just like Kemp, Justin was nice enough to bring me into these lighting meetings, but I hadn't seen anything other than a trailer that had sent these reverberations through the industry. And when I finally got to screen the film and Phil and Chris are sitting in the row in front of me, they turn around and they go like, all right, so like we did that. Uh, how do we, you know, how do we completely change it now and do something bigger? And my, you know, my brains are melting out of my ears. Yeah, and I'm like, groundbreaking thing. Hang on a yeah. second. Yeah. Yeah. That had, it was it daunting. Hugely daunting. Hugely daunting. I got, 
really nervous when the film started sort of really sort of receiving critical, you know, recognition. And uh, these two guys, uh, along with Phil and Chris, really sort of talked me off a ledge because I was I think I was working myself up a little bit. And they said, like, hey, the success of this film is going to afford us creative freedom. It's going to allow us to really push in spaces that that we might not have been able to had the film not landed in the way it did. You you have uh, an extensive background, if I'm not mistaken, in doing television animation. Yeah. How much of that is in the skills that you developed in doing that are transferable to a feature? You know, I, I think features is a really long contemplative game. You 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 get to work scenes over and over again and really refine them. But I think when you're in the trenches and sometimes decisions need to be made sort of in the moment, I think that's where I was able to really rest on some of my TV experience because we don't have the luxury. We have to, you know, it's the first or second try at bat and that's what's going out the door. And I think when we found ourselves in some pretty deep waters, that came in handy. We're talking with the trio of directors of uh, Spider-Man uh, across the Spider-Verse, the uh, film that has been critically acclaimed and now Oscar-nominated for Best Animated Feature. We're talking with Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. I want to talk about uh, the the different uh, dimensions, these worlds that you create that each have their own totally distinct identity. And um, Justin, maybe you can talk to how you come up with the look for the particular demand, or, or is that the dimension follows the look that you're seeking? Which which comes first? I think actually what comes first is the character. Mm -hmm. And it's always a story decision. And we had this amazing character, uh, Miles, and it's his story, and it's about his journey away from home and for the first time. And throwing him into these unexpected places and thinking of emotional ideas that would resonate and tell his story. So in other words, we had this idea of we wanted to throw him out of his world into a place that was completely unlike anything he'd ever seen. And we started thinking what would be very different from New York, from Brooklyn. And we thought of when we saw in the comics, oh, it was right there, Spider India. And so we said <laughs> it would be awesome. And so when we said, so we started developing Spider India's world, Pavitra Prabhakar's world, we started saying to ourselves, well, are there, are there ways to make this different? And thankfully our Indian animators on our, our team said, hey, there's these comics that we used to read when we were I a kid. I love that. They must have been so excited and they oh, could bring oh that God. into yeah. this. Yeah. yeah. yeah you because this is something in. most of us would not be familiar with unless you know we were exposed to some of the artists who are working in India. We'll come back and pick that up. We're talking again with the three directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. We'll be back with more on Film Week in just a minute. It's Film Week on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with the three directors of the Oscar-nominated animated feature Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Returning Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy and a whole host of new characters and new dimensions as well to Miles' saga. I'm joined by Justin K. Thompson, Kemp Powers, and Joaquim Dos Santos. Uh, we were just talking about the, the animators in India, the artists there, uh, saying that there were 
you know, comic books and artists working there that they could bring that look into it. Kemp, you know, talk a little bit to how, for the artists who are working on this, there are things that they were able to bring in from people they admired. Well, that was one of the most exciting and I think gratifying things about this whole process is that our crew, we had a crew of a thousand people from all over the world. And this unique story that we were trying to tell was was great for them because it opened up opportunities for them to bring their personal selves into the filmmaking process. And that's something we always encourage from the very, very beginning. Um, a good idea should and could come from anywhere. Mm. And if a good idea, if someone had a great idea, it was very easy for them to filter it all the way up to us, to the directors, to, to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the producers. And on a film like this where... I mean, Spider-Man India is a great example. I mean, <laughs> there were so many animators who are of Asian or uh, Latino descent. Mm -hmm. And this is a unique opportunity for them to speak up as they see things come across their desk. And and we had the agility and flexibility to really act on that. I mean, India is a unique case because we got pretty far along in the production process on Spider-Man India's world. And I remember the first time we, we screened it for the crew and it takes a lot, I want to really, like, I can't overstate how, how much bravery it takes for them to do this, but a group of animators actually wrote us mm -hmm. a long email saying, um, we, we love this character, we think he's interesting, but we think he could be cooler. We, we don't think you've quite yeah. gotten it right. Yeah. Now, at a certain stage in the production process, it's common in film to say, well, you know what, we hear you, but you know what, it's too far it's too along, late. it's too late, there's nothing we can do. Mm -hmm. Instead, we very quickly assembled a writer's room of all Indian and Indian-American um, writers, comedians. We even invited Karan Sony, who, Karan Sony, who was the voice of Pavitra, into the room. And we spent an entire day just spitballing ideas, rebroke, rewrote, redid the entire sequence. And a sequence that went from probably one of the weaker sequences mm -hmm. in the film in early screenings turned into one of everyone's favorite scenes and one of the strongest oh, scenes. Oh, it's great. And Kemp, for you, you know, as you're sitting in there and hearing all this, it's got to be thrilling for you as a writer because you're learning all this stuff as well. And one of the things that I loved about Soul, too, because I'm a huge jazz fan, I felt the... Because it's a culture, I know the cultural specificity of soul is just mm -hmm. like, yeah, dig it, this is right, this is right. And and I'm sure for people who are seeing their cultures represented in across the Spider-Verse, it's got to be thrilling for them to see it and to get it right. I would hope so, because one thing I've always believed is that cultural specificity, people shy away from it because they feel like they it's going to alienate an audience. I think quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Cultural specificity is what makes us all lean in. It reminds everyone in the world that our stories are, are universal. It's been so interesting on this whole process meeting other filmmakers. Part of the reason why I'm actually in the film industry is because of Alexander Payne. A lot of people don't know this. Um, when I f took my first screenwriting class, the script that we were deconstructing was about Schmidt. An Alexander Payne film yeah. that's literally about like an insurance, an old white insurance salesman in the Midwest. There were universal themes in that film that connected to me, a black man from Brooklyn, New York, examining his own life mm. and ideas. And it's like, wow, it really is true that like no matter the, the specificity pulls me in because it's interesting. It's yeah. unique. It amuses me. It, it, but then it opens up this door to universality. And, and I think that was the case with Soul. I 
definitely think that's the case with our film, not yeah. just with Miles Morales, but with all of these different characters. And it's just such a delight for audiences in England, in London, in Camden, in India, for people to send us little clips of videos from theaters in mm -hmm. different parts yeah. of the world, seeing them rejoice in, in these themes that we do believe are universal while also seeing their culture them themselves represented authentically. I should mention Kemp as well. For those who aren't familiar, you also wrote One Night in Miami, yes. <laughs> critically acclaimed uh, stage production, which was then adapted, of course, to a uh, very well-regarded feature film. Thanks. So, uh, wonderful project you've been involved with. That's Kemp Powers, one of the three directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, along with Joaquim Dos Santos and Justin K. Thompson. What came out, I wanted to ask you, uh, I mean, speaking, speaking of cultural specificity, if I'm not mistaken, um, you were born in Portugal. I you'd was. go back and visit a lot, even though you're raised in the States, but you'd go back and. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm just, did that give you a sort of international sense to, that you bring to your work? I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's international. I would say, you know, Spider Man was, my middle name is Aranha, which means spider in Portuguese. Oh, wow. Um, it's like our family crest. So, Spider Man was literally like the first pop culture anything that I You're can destined. remember seeing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the character sort of generally was, was, a bit universal because he's the working man's superhero. You know, he didn't he didn't come from he doesn't have a million dollar mansion. He doesn't have all the coolest technology in the world. He's sewing up his own suit when he gets beaten up by the supervillains. Um, but what I will say about this film uh, in particular, and, and and again to touch back on on uh, Pavitra, is seeing other artists moved to create their own art as a result of this film has been like I think the. The, the this the sort of like greatest joy that that we could have there's beautiful murals that are that were done in India I think that might not have happened had we not leaned in and been so specific with 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 our characters and with our characterization um, so I think that's across the board I don't I don't know that I brought any international flair other than to say that like you know, I grew up with Western comics, which were all the Marvel and the DC yeah. books, specifically Marvel. No hate on DC. Um, but then in Europe, uh, comics are are sort of held to a different regard, um, and graphic novelization is is really, you know, my my aunt and my my uncles and cousins they all read comics. They were reading Tintin, they were reading Lucky Luke, um, and they were held at this this different standard. So I think having that sort of in the in mm -hmm. the the back of my mind uh, allowed me to feel comfortable elevating uh, some of these characters. Let's, let's talk a bit about the technology. Justin touched on this bit. You had to invent stuff. Mm. Um, and Joaquin, maybe maybe describe for us some of the things that, you know, solution you needed for a challenge and, and a piece of technology that solved it. I would say I'm going to just throw to Justin because okay. he really is the guy to answer this question. All right, Mr. Tech of Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Tech. Well, I'm the guy who sat in the room while really smart people actually <laughs> figured out the tech. Um, actually, um, I think one of the most difficult challenges was when we were actually developing Spider-Punk. Um, there are, I mean, everything in the movie was complicated. There was nothing that was off the shelf. Everything was custom. I have to stress that the entire movie is one gigantic special effect. Um, but when we were developing Spider-Punk, you know, we had played around with different frame rates, but then we started saying with Spider-Punk, you know, he's a character, everything's story-based, and he's a character that doesn't follow the rules. He needs to represent that visually, that he's just a character who doesn't follow any rules. And so we said, 
you know, his head needs to move on one different frame rate. His arms need to move on another frame rate. His body needs to move at another frame rate. The camera has to move at a different frame rate. And all these things need to be controlled and given performance by mm -hmm. the animators. This is not something that is easy to do. And they had to work really, really hard and smart and brilliantly to figure it out. And once they did, it was kind of incredible because they could make they could make him move almost like puppet him and let him react in to Daniel Kaluuya's incredible voice performance yeah. and hit these like marks that Daniel was hitting with his voice wow. in a way that I don't think I've ever seen before. And they could change the animators. We also gave them control to like change the color of different parts of his body. And like, and we wanted him to be constantly changing in every scene. It was a is a huge technical challenge. I, I also thought it was. I mean, I I really I'm glad people have been noticing it. But the element of the technology that it's easy to get lost in the technology. And one of the things I thought that we did that I thought was really cool was when we did get the tech right, we would still have artists come in and draw over it. Oh yeah. So that you see the hand of the visual artist. At, even at the at the very last step, usually the hand of the artist is in the beginning, and then it kind of is given over to the technology. We kind of start with the artist. Yeah. We go through this long technological stage where VFX and all these things are are you know really laid onto the film. But then the artists come in at the end again, and you see it in the drawover line. You see it in the line work and the drawovers of the artists. A great example of that would be on the train chase scene which I think a lot of fans noticed in when they saw it in the trailer where Miguel O'Hara is chasing Miles Morales and when you freeze on any single frame it looks like a work of art and you see like little notes from the you see all these little these little like um yeah. artistic things that were done after the animation. So these are subtleties that the audience picks up, uh, not necessarily at a conscious level, no. but the impact of it is so much greater because of that hand, because of that human touch at the end. And it makes reviewing such a delight. I, I love the fact that people see the film again and again and again and notice different things, things. Um, every time they watch it. Gentlemen, we are too quickly out of time, but thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. This has really been fun and thrilling. The creative endeavor that you undertook Took with a kind of pressure I know had to be there given the success of the predecessor film and you pulled it off beautifully congratulations on all the honors well deserved thank, thank you, you so much thank you appreciate so much it the three us. directors of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse Joaquim Dos Santos Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson it's Film Week on LA at 89.3 thank you so much for joining us if you missed any of our conversation or the reviews previously with the critics you can hear the entire hour wherever you get your podcasts. Have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.